0: folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am Mark Fraser. I am joined by the fabulous Christopher Cusack. You sounded a little bit unsure about who you were, just for a moment now. I feel unsure about who I am today, Chris. <laughs> who would you rather be? Literally anyone else. Vince <laughs> yeah? Vince McMahon? Maybe not him, not right now. Maybe not Vince like McMahon. I'd like to have his money. That'd be great.
1: Yeah. What
0: about his body? 76? What, I think it, I'd like to have his body as well. On with that guy's body. <laughs> Did you see, what WrestleMania, He looked weird, man. <laughs> <laughs> he looked like he was held together with sellotape and chicken. Yeah, yeah, really. It was, it was like, yeah, it was like it was like chicken in a fucking plastic bag, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Taped his arms. So, uh, I mean, good, good on you for being cut at that age, but you shouldn't really be cut at that
1: age. <laughs> I think it's a different kind of cut. Yeah. Um, so we can agree that it's good to be Mark Fraser <laughs> as opposed to Vince McMahon. <laughs> right on some levels. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's good to be me. Yeah I'm um, just cuz it's good to be me I'm fine. Um okay, awesome. I I I got a free ticket to go and see Nine Inch Nails last night. I'm not going to give away how that happened. I wasn't planning on going because I was a wee bit indignant that they were charging the best part of 100 pounds for a ticket to what's one of the worst music venues in the world. Mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. but I got uh, kind of short notice, I was like, do you want to go with this? I was like, well, I suppose I'll go if it's mm-hmm. free then, yes <laughs> And it was quite good, didn't sound amazing But it was a good night out And fun was had Took a wee nap this afternoon To try and recover from some of the fun that was had <laughs> uh, And I uh, walked away with one of Trent Reznor's Plectrums Nice So there you go Sounds like a good fun time uh, It was alright, it was unexpected You know, It was either that or... Netflix and chill Yeah Wow well. <laughs> <laughs> um, And it took me back it, re- it really really did take me back 9 inch Nails for me Were one of the bands Of my teens mm. Loved that band um, And thankfully They played quite a lot of stuff Did they? From that era Yeah yeah That's cool They played uh, A, a f- like Bits and Bobs off a Broken. They played a a few really good ones off Downward Spiral. Yeah, it was was a good wee trip down memory lane, which is appropriate because uh, after we get through our admin today, this episode's going to be a little bit of a trip down memory lane. For you specifically. For me specifically, (laughs) yes.
0: Um, Because, yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. But in terms of admin, first of all, big up to Todd for just Todd, super cool, super fucking cool, man. He just <laughs> he decided to go annual and he yeah dropped an unfathomable amount of money. So taking advantage of that discount, know that two month off discount if you subscribe annually to our Patreon, Patreon.com for Unsung Pod. You get a two months off, two month free, which is pretty cool. Everybody, a few people do it. So. Everybody
1: should try annual at least once. Yes. <laughs> uh, thanks very much for that, Todd. That means we have to keep doing this. It, it means we have to keep doing it. <laughs> it <laughs> with, there's no other option. <laughs> Every time we get to that idea of oh god. God, I just finished the edit and now we need to do another episode mm-hmm. We're like, oh well, Todd and people like him are keeping us honest Yeah, and,
0: and we need to continue <laughs> to source records as well Which is getting harder and harder and harder But we've
1: got an idea though um, We've been getting a lot of really good feedback from our record club members They seem to be really enjoying what we're, we're sending out I know that just sounds like hard sell bullshit But it is actually true We get messages uh, every week Yeah, yeah, and so what we're going to do is We're going to do a wee episode where we we're, we're we're going to do uh, a little magazine edition uh, where we discuss uh, maybe three or four of mm-hmm. the, the albums we've been sending yeah. people. Uh, if you're a normal tier subscriber, we're going to tease you with that. And then we might put it in general le- release shortly after to let people hear what's, what's doing the rounds, what's flying about uh, the postal service. Mm-hmm. Um, Marketing, yeah. baby. Marketing. <laughs> <laughs> totally, we're getting good at that. Uh,
0: so speaking of getting good at stuff, Chris, tell us about this week's choice. Quite out of the blue Just dropped it on me when I was moving house at the weekend Didn't get myself a hernia
1: by the way My back is still recovering but you know Well I mean As we've established throughout the course of this podcast Music comes in in a variety of forms Uh, The soundtrack Is certainly one of those We've done you know dedicated episodes on soundtracks We've only done one Is this our first actual episode on a single soundtrack On an individual Mm -hmm. one yeah yeah it is yeah And I have chosen The Clerks Clerks, 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 Clerks. Official soundtrack from
0: nineteen
1: ninety four. I know, um, I know I, it's an odd one, but I can't remember how it sprang up a few weeks ago. But I, I was just really struck once more by influence not just that this soundtrack had on me personally but the influence it had on the world of soundtracks Mm -hmm. um yeah because because when we did the movie mixtape special we wrestled with a few different formats of soundtracks and and judgment night was a good example of people trying to push it in a different direction you know Mm -hmm. do something different get these like one rap slash hip-hop act to kick to team up with one metal or rock act and so on and Around about that period of the eighties and nineties, soundtracks were a really lucrative thing. you know mm-hmm. if a movie was popular, a soundtrack was often popular top gun you know the that was a good example of a of a hit soundtrack flash dance, flash dance bodyguard all that ki- that that kind of thing you know Pretty dancing yeah a lot and in the early 90s Maybe they'd be mirroring the cultural shift you know it, when where you had the rejection of that eighties excess. In uh, music, obviously, grunge came along and hair metal became really passy very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also had like a kind of grunge fashion equivalent came along. And the same sort of happened in cinema, and especially the rise of independent cinema in the early 1990s. And loads of great little indie films that I'm sure we all hold very dearly. And the, the Clerks soundtrack had a different approach to a lot of other soundtracks. And it... it when you think back in the chronology of it, it, was actually one of the early ones to cause a big splash. Cause here you had this film on a micro budget, mm-hmm. but with some of the biggest rock acts that were doing the round at the time, or at least the cool rock acts. And it was audacious. And it was a very, very successful experiment. And I think the uh, kudos that it, uh, it attracted to the Clerks project, to, to the movie, uh, and just to the, the the mythology of that whole film that led to, you know, a remake decades later, or a sequel decades later, things like that. It was just such a such a key part of, of that film. And I think people are like, oh, that was a pretty good soundtrack, but I don't think they really take on board. I think it's unsung in... What a success story that soundtrack, mm-hmm. that idea, that uh, that gamble was. Um, and I also just think, and I, I do attach a caveat here, I do think as a collection of songs, it was very strong. That's at the time... I'm not saying it's aged particularly well. Mm. Uh, I'm sure you'll have thoughts on, on that front. But yeah, I, I, I have a lot of time for it. Um, and I realised how much it influenced me. Mm. I was about 13 years old and it had a big impact on the music I was listening to. And I was like, oh, holy shit. So You know, it's almost like a tasting platter. Yeah. You know, here, see, see if you like any of these. And I think... Oh, 60-70% of the bands on here I ended up pursuing in a, a reasonably Serious way, mm-hmm. so yeah I think it's interesting that I like that The the thing about this that separates it
0: from many Other films like this at that time is, is the small budget of the film Itself, the fact it was distributed by Miramax Obviously helped it quite a lot, right um, But the, the, the aesthetic Of the soundtrack, if you want to put it that way It had been done before, you know. Singles, the Cameron Crowe film came out in 1992. It's all about the grunge scene. Mm -hmm. Um, It's got a massive grunge soundtrack. Everybody who's the only person, the only band that's not on it is Nirvana, you know. Um, Screaming Trees, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains. Mudhoney and stuff like that Are on it There was one Sonic Youth Were a part of as well Did three songs for I can't remember what it was Well actually
1: I've got a fairly comprehensive Little study of this Mm. So um, We'll we'll dig into it In in, in that sense Because There were a lot of soundtracks That were trying to be cool Some of them were trying A little bit too hard Mm. You know what I mean Um so, yeah, the, the Clerks soundtrack fairly well appreciated. Uh, there's numerous articles to that effect. You know, the likes of Billboard have a very long, lengthy, deep dive into mm-hmm. it and why it was such a, a successful gamble, as I say. Um, it was something of a test case. Uh, the studio had an indie film they liked, but what could they do to push and package it in a way that might generate a wider audience, wider appeal? Because mm-hmm. it was a really niche film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's become very beloved, but it's a surprising one.
0: Probably um, his best
1: film, I'd say. I don't really like
0: Kevin Smith, but I watched it again last night, and it's it's aged better than I thought. I
1: had to say, better than some of his other films have. I think one of the things is it didn't age well at the time. That's mm-hmm. that's like it, it seemed naff, and uh, I mean Brian O'Halloran's performance in it, in particular, as Dante, is like a bit crap. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's really kind of awkward. So I I think it sort of still looks amateurish. Uh, it, all the qualities That seemed pretty evident At the time Are still there So You know I, I can't say people thought It was any great Stirring indie performance They, mm-hmm. they just loved it Because it was naive and silly mm-hmm. And it still is naive and silly And that's yeah. maybe helped it It got, um, got a lot of critical acclaim At the time as well For, it, for exactly for that reason Yeah and, I mean It was Somebody from Miramax saw it at Sundance by accident Apparently it was on the brochure for Sundance that year It had a shitty picture on the brochure mm-hmm. And they felt so sorry for it mm-hmm. They went along to it They were like that looks fucking terrible And they went along to it and loved it uh, Now I don't have the nitty gritty details here But at that point it wouldn't have had a lot of these artists on it mm-hmm. um, Because they, when Miramax picked it up and then Sony got involved. That's when they were able to start pitching artists from Columbia and and really getting them interested and stuff. So it would be interesting to know what was on it musically in those really early days. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there, there were a lot of other classic soundtracks of that year. We'll go through them, but the likes of Reality Bites uh, and Pump Up the Volume, things like that, they featured hot names and they had higher studio production values. You know, they were properly filmed films colour for starters, you know, proper camera work, crews, you had Ethan Hawke Winona Riders, Christian Slater's it it wasn't the same thing it wasn't a total imbalance of these complete unknowns, not just unknowns but people who weren't even actors and actresses Mm. you know, that part of it is very very different, I think Clerks as well also really managed to capture the zeitgeist in 1994 whilst remaining a wee bit edgy, so many others as I say tried but felt a bit too slick, Um, we'll, we'll name a couple of them shortly um, it had a credibility uh, That others could only really pray for And I think there's certain bands That are on it that probably wouldn't have agreed To be on other soundtracks No matter how cool or how hard they were pressed to would say like Jesus Lizard and Bad Religion Are two good examples of that Of my like, like, literally, two of my top five bands of all time and Jesus Lizard are very, very sparingly used in films. I think Saint Maud, the recent one, is one of the only other real examples that come to mind off the top of my head. I think it was one, a film called Onidin, that they were on, Bad Religion as well, very, very, very rarely featured in soundtracks. So, those are cool bands, those are bands that don't necessarily agree. I mean, this is this is a Steve Albini. Recording. I mean how many movies have got a fucking Steve Albini edgy recording in the soundtrack? Um, as I say the focus in soundtracks at this time had shifted, the big eighties power rock thing seemed to go the same way as hair metal. Placed with that demure, flannel, acoustic guitar-influenced angst That whole world of, like, reality bites And that early 90s era of indie, sort of, romantic filmmaking Some of which is just detestably fucking bland mm. Like, just horrible This wasn't that This was a different aspect to the Generation X thing Um the film Slacker from 1990s, which was made by and starring Richard Linklater, is seen as the vanguard of that movement. Uh, Kevin Smith himself has repeatedly touted it as the main inspiration for Clerks. Uh, he said it proved, quote, that movies didn't need to blow up the Death Star. They could just be a snapshot of where you were in life. And that, to me, is a big, big part of that Slacker culture, was that the stories sort of went nowhere. It was people kind of, I mean... The film Suburbia did this quite specifically But it was literally just groups of young people Meeting and parting and meeting and parting Going away and coming back across Urban sprawls and sort of gas stations And you know 7-Elevens and all that It's just that kind of like slow American pace The openness and the skateboards And the sitting on the curbs chatting about stuff And it's quite a relaxing aesthetic You know there's something quite nice about it And you would get interesting character studies from it The only thing is it could sometimes also just be a bit featureless Mm -hmm. it could be a little bit of a uh, where's this going clerks had a nice comedic underpinning to that you know it 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 had a bit of that but it 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 kept it zipping along with this air of being a comedy by the way not a lot of people uh, that i know that are fans of the film know this but originally dante was shot at the end of the film yeah i heard Um, about that Uh that was removed by the studio they were like no keep it as a comedy somebody comes in after Mm -hmm. Randall sort of berserkers out the door Yeah, and they they hold up the convenience store and shoot them yeah Um, do you know um, Roger Ebert or Roger Ebert
0: and uh, Gene Siskel when they they actually saw that cut of the film I thought it probably was a Sundance they probably seen it and they said that when they seen the the theatrical release Roger Ebert specifically was saying that that was actually a really good choice on the choice on on the part of the studio slash Kevin Smith because apparently it doesn't feel earned in order for that thing To really pay off At the end of the film There needs to be A, a kind of creeping sense Of some dread yeah, And yeah. it just didn't have it So
1: it would even A total flat ending Yeah it, it was a little bit Too Generation X It was a little bit Too sort of nihilistic mm-hmm. Oh and then he dies Because that's life And it's meaningless You know it was a little bit Too Daria um, So I that era You know in my head Just the kind of things That come to mind You know grunge Douglas Copeland uh, The grunge fashion You know flannel shirts Which play a very big part Of my life mm-hmm. to this day Uh, And that explosion in the cinema, uh, the obvious change in priorities, both at the labels and at the film studios, you know, that thing where they're trying to keep up to date, to seem relevant, to seem cutting edge. And in this case, they're following the public trend. The trend has happened, you know, the big record labels, for example, didn't want Nirvana to happen. Mm -hmm. Nirvana, as a sort of avatar for that sort of sudden, you know, cultural shift... They just happened and they lost these labels, these studios lost a lot of money because they'd been investing in bands like Poison, who then overnight became like ridiculous, mm-hmm. became a joke. So they had to really play catch up quick. In some ways that happened because they recruited all these new staff They were like, we need to get some of this old wood out of here Now, one of the big accusations that Nirvana and people like that always had Was that these places were staffed with dinosaurs That's just a cycle It happens now, still People who start out relevant Hang about in industry too long And end up sort of Sometimes I think maybe unwittingly Holding everything back With their old sensibilities Refusing to let new trends come through And listen to new advice So there's a big change of staff And one of those changes of staff actually plays a really big part In in this film, and this soundtrack Um, So yeah, everybody's adapting at the same time And I think the convergence of the indie cinema And the the alternative music that exploded Was just totally inevitable Mm -hmm. You know, it had to be In the same way as you had raging, wailing guitar solos And stuff like Top Gun, you know hyper masculine american 80s music rocky soundtracks eye of the tiger you know you, you had the opposite which was you know team up all these nihilistic jaded, disaffected uh, guitarists uh, with, with, with long hair and drug problems with monochrome hand shot cinema. So it, it's it's fascinating in that sense because with the benefit of time you can really see that shape now. You can really see how it took place. Um, the soundtracks of the era I thought were interesting. to try and place Clerks uh, in amongst that early 90s pantheon the first one I mentioned it already was actually Pump Up the Volume, uh, a film about a radio station and a film that became known largely for having a really, really good contemporary soundtrack. Uh, some of the bands that appeared in that were Pixies, Sonic Youth, Soundgarden. You also had Bad Brains, Way Henry Rollins doing, is oh, that an MC5 song? Something like that. Pick um, um, the, the jams, was it? So that, that soundtrack, though, caused a stir But as I say, it wasn't that same massive imbalance I mean, it was a young Christian Slater But he'd mm-hmm. already done Heather's I think he was, at, at the same time He was working on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves So he was he was money, you mm-hmm. know it, it, and, and it was properly produced um, You had Boys in the Hood, you know, A different side of music, but Boys in the Hood yeah, Came out in 91, mm-hmm. Ice Cube, Jazzy Jeff Raphael Wiggins, Prodigy That's how you support the Totally different approach. The, a big part of that film is the music. A huge part of that film yeah, is the music wow. and the historic association of that soundtrack mm-hmm. with it. It was really, really well rounded and balanced and integrated in it. Uh, singles, you mentioned 92, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Smashing Pumpkins, Pearl Jam, Mud Honey. But a film about grunge so a film about music so in in one way it was almost unavoidable that you'd have this this soundtrack also the fact that they actually invited a lot of these musicians who were really breaking at the time and it's 92 you know it's a year after Nevermind. so these musicians are asked do you want to be in this film about your scene Uh, it's already got some pretty big names in it you know Matt Dillon and stuff like that so again yeah a success story in that In in that era But not quite the same thing Um, And definitely whilst the soundtrack was a big part of it it was, an, it was just sort of an obligatory part of it. It's like, well, this is what this film's about. It has to be like this. Um, Wayne's World, I would say, qualifies because it's 92. It's maybe slightly different because Wayne's World, if, if anything, actually glorified the music that had come before. It was, sat- was satirising the music that came before. Yeah, it, it was affectionately satirising it, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a lot of genuine love for Alice Cooper and some of the hair metal and stuff in that. Um, soundtracks... All right, <laughs> it's odd in places. I had Red Hot Chili's when the Red Hot Chili's were still an okay band to like. I think uh, Black Sabbath, Soundgarden Alice Cooper, Eric Clapton, mm-hmm. big hitter, a uh, bit of a confused one, and, I may, and, and like a big studio production as well. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely, yeah.
0: Hey, wait a minute, what are we doing? yeah we got backstage passes for Alice Cooper.
1: Uh, Judgment Night we spoke about Slayer, Run DMC, Helmet, Faith No More Cypress Hill, Sonic Youth again
0: made Just another
1: victim. Just another victim. Uh, Judgment Night was as we spoke about at length during that uh, movie mixtape episode Really innovative Where they were like Right we've got this Action film We've got these guys Trying to get across This really dangerous Part of the city And we're going to Deliberately make A soundtrack That gets people talking mm-hmm. And pairing up And commissioning And pairing up All these different acts To produce these Original pieces of work Some of which Like the Faith No More Booyah Tribe one And Another Body Murdered Became a great song mm-hmm. In its own right You know It stood the test of time Bring your head to this
0: Another Body murder.
1: So that was a different approach And it was a big studio budget They were able to go out And say, get these already quite famous acts Very famous in, the, in some senses uh, Into studios to, to work together um, A really big one is The Crow in 1994 yeah. huge one I was going to bring that up, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't nominate that for unsung soundtrack because it is so... I mean, it's such a pivotal soundtrack, I think, in most people's lives. It was a big movie production. It had a lot of budget behind it. Uh, The Cure, Nine Inch Nails, Pantera, Violent Femmes, Rage Against the Machine, loads loads more besides... Um, very, very, very personally significant soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, doesn't have that anomalous quality of wait a minute, why does this zero budget movie suddenly have these big names attached And Whilst I think the Crow soundtrack definitely heightened the legacy of the movie. Definitely heightened the legacy of the movie. It's on a whole other level up. Natural Born Killers. Another huge one I mean it, When you start to list them You realise what a huge era It was for soundtracks I mean I know Soundtracks are still a thing But I mean Frozen Is that mm. probably the biggest soundtrack Of our Like of the Of recent years I mean What, what was a huge soundtrack Uh I mean, Titanic was late nineties now, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, what was a huge soundtrack in the two thousands? It's musical films, you know, like uh, The Greatest Showman and stuff like that. They but they're huge. Yeah. You know? I mean, Moulin Rouge, that thing, that, uh, that that adaptation with that, yeah. was ages ago as well. I mm-hmm. mean, I just don't hear or see as many iconic film soundtracks now. Maybe we can reflect on that at another time. But you can tell that this time it was still a huge thing. So, Natural Born Killers was Nine Inch Nails again. L7, Patsy Klein on there. Peter Gabriel. There was a lot of Nine Inch Nails in there. It was very much a curated thing in in conjunction with Reznor and the whole thing flows. Uh, I think, interestingly, that has a lot of the samples of dialogue, which Mm. is something that uh, Clerks did as well. Came out the same year. Why'd you pick me up? Why'd you take me out of my fucking house? Kill my parents with me! Ain't you committed to me? Where are we fucking going? Just relax, alright? It's me, your lover, not some demon, not your father, alright, relax.
0: No,
1: you're not my Um ninety five, Empire Records, and this is one that a lot of people point to. Empire Records was a Liv Tyler movie. A lot of faces in it went on to do really big things. It's a pretty banal film. It's set in a record shop. It's not a great film. No, it, it's trying so fucking hard. It's, it's Some of the romanticism of, of reality bites, some of that wishy washy stuff. It tries to be a little bit funny and irreverent and cool, but it doesn't really succeed at any of it. It's not particularly funny, it's not particularly entertaining, and, and the soundtrack is fittingly wishy washy as well. Uh, it's uh, the cranberries. Don't get me wrong, I don't hate the cranberries, but it's kind of beige. You know, so M O R alternative rock, if you know what I mean? Uh, Evan Dando, Jin Blossoms, Edwin Collins, and then loads of names who I've just never heard of since. I actually listened to that entire soundtrack to sort of try and work out if I knew any of those other artists that are on it and it's just it is a who's who of fucking failed alternative rock and indie projects. Um after that, you had Suburbia, which I mentioned. Suburbia soundtrack is fucking excellent, man. It's like Ministry, Beck, Soundgarden, Skinny Puppy. Pennywise, Elastica, Butthole Surfers, Flaming Lips, Girls Against Boys. It's a really good soundtrack. The only thing I would say about Suburbia is it feels really forced. It feels like there has been a workshopping thing in the studio, we're like, we need to make this film, we need to get these young, attractive, alternative figures into this film, we need to shoehorn in a great fucking soundtrack and they've even taken, I think, uh, the lead from other soundtracks, you know, the inclusion of Ministry, the inclusion of Pennywise when they couldn't get Bad Religion, you know, the, the inclusion of Girls Against Boys, who seem to pop up in a lot of these, almost like, oh, you're doing a Generation X film, right, okay, get Girls Against Boys in the soundtrack... That kind of thing It feels a little bit Prescribed to me Mm. And I actually have Quite a soft spot For that film It's okay It's quite nice But uh, It meanders a bit And I just can't shake The feeling that The soundtrack Is a little bit Calculating It doesn't feel It it doesn't make As many mistakes As Clerks And Mm. I think Clerks Makes mistakes Because it was Trying something Completely innovative And this wasn't uh, Romeo and Juliet, 96 Huge soundtrack uh, The Baz Luhrmann film uh, Radiohead were on it, Everclear were on it Cardigans, Butthole Surfers, Garbage Big bands from that era And it's a soundtrack that fucking shifted Mega units, mega units I, I, really, I really liked it um, I, I still really like that song Talk Show Host that, that, that Radiohead put on that Yeah,
0: really big one Lost Highway in 97 another oh, Wait a second, you're going to skip over 1996 And I'll talk about Trainspotting Sorry, good <laughs> Trainspotting obviously was a huge film With a massive soundtrack as well Iggy Pop, Primal Scream There were two soundtracks for that film the, all, the, all the indie stuff Including Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and Pulp and Elastica That, uh, that class Underworld song, obviously And then the second one was more like Heaven 17 and more Underworld, Joy Division, Cold Day. It was, yeah, it was a huge, huge film. Huge, huge British indie film as well Mm. uh, with with a lot of really big names on the soundtrack and a lot of good use of music in the film as well.
1: It's interesting that, because that's that was coming off the back of like Britpop and and it did really uh, consolidate a lot of that movement it was very exciting for the media at the time Mm. it gave them something to rally around became like a real totemic cultural thing totally yeah it it was part of Cool Britannia
0: at the time exactly exactly but a huge part of that Gen X in Britain I guess yeah
1: that's exactly it it was very quintessentially British Mm. you know it was a little bit more despairing and negative and miserable you know focusing on these people who really are junkies focusing on you know things like Dead babies babies and all that quite a world away from the sort of american depiction of generation x in movies Mm. which was sort of harmless and sort of lower middle class that that kind of thing the british taking it was yeah a bit more sinister and another one i think is probably worth mentioning just because it's a film which i i remember i've
0: only seen it Twice And I really liked it Both times But the, the soundtrack itself Is is more of a mood Thing But Dead Man A Jim Jarmusch film oh, that's, that's what where he plays William Blake Yeah pretty much yeah. And there's a bit of, Basically his journey To or through the afterlife Like It's, it's unclear But he's dead anyway Or Aye, died Via, via the, the, the metaphor Of
1: the Wild West Yeah, yeah. And
0: uh, the, the soundtrack Is completely improvised By Neil Young As he was watching it Yeah um, he watched it In a cinema And yeah. he just recorded it It's a fucking brilliant soundtrack Really really good, yeah. soundtrack, really good yeah. soundtrack Really good film as well You know Yeah
1: Um, and then things took a kind of gothy turn, because in 97 you had Lost Highway, um, which had Bowie a couple of times, Marlon Manson, Ramstein. Man Nine Inch Nails again, Smashing Pumpkins again, uh, Lou Reed, uh, big David Lynch movie big soundtrack you know really iconic but a, t- a totally different take on it it's just when you know you're starting to get into new metal things were getting a little bit cyber and a little bit dark mm-hmm. and metal was starting to get into the charts because yep. you know had, like System of a Downer and Coal Chamber and stuff actually getting into like top tens and things mm-hmm. uh, you had Spawn in 97 which Spawn, we, al- yeah. we also spoke about that on the, the movie mixtape Mar- yeah, Marlon <laughs> Manson Korn Metallica Moby Prodigy Atari Teenage Riot another one of those ones that sort of teamed people up a film that did not land the way that they, they hoped it would land yeah. um and I would suggest the soundtrack kind of did the same as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not without its half-decent moments, but uh, yeah. By that point, they'd gone way past the Generation X thing. You get into the new metal thing, you got into the hyper-masculinity and a lot of the gothy culture entering the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Marlon Manson became like the biggest fucking name in the world, thereabouts. Uh, it, it, so it all passed. And so in that window between maybe like eighty nine ninety and the, the, the late 90s when it shifted again to new metal, when you had that sort of alternative culture surge mm-hmm. um, clearing out all the kind of uber Hollywood, uber Americana American flags, I mean, that's an interesting thing actually, the role of the American flag mm-hmm. in those years, because it went from 1980s being like draped in the backgrounds of films to like set on fire mm-hmm. by the 1990s, it became a sort of mark of shame and you had mm-hmm. films like JFK all over, you know, and despite the fact that JFK is full of fucking lies, mm-hmm. uh, because it's made by a fucking lying cunt, mm-hmm. Oliver Stone, um, it, it really also exemplifies the change on, on the role of a, a, the American idea, mm-hmm. you know, American life, the American dream. Um, so I think that Generation X period of, of cinema is really, really interesting. Some people, though, trying way too fucking hard. And I don't think Kevin Smith was guilty of that to start with. I I think he was a victim of his own success in some ways because he followed Clerks, which was 94, with Mallrats in 95, which is actually all right in places. It's not aged well. It's it's not aged well. Um, The soundtrack to Mallrats actually had bands like Belly, Girls Against Boys, All were on that. Uh, Elastica, Weezer, Bush, Sublime... (laughs) It's similar, but it it feels slicker. It feels less special. It feels less organic. Mm -hmm. Feels like they're trying to repeat their success and it's a bit more workshopped with mm. the studio and stuff, and I think it's a little bit less personal as mm. a result of that. And then he followed that with Chasing Amy in 97, a film I didn't like, even when I did like Kevin Smith. Might uh, might come into the Nexus at some point. Okay, that. there you go. Um, that is an odd one. I mean, that had Soul Asylum again, because Kevin Smith fell in love with Soul Asylum, and they're like the quintessential band of those early 90s films. But uh, Faithless were on that, Public Enemy anyway were on that, Sponge, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. It's a weird... Soundtrack that seems like it's lost its way a bit It doesn't really hang on the film that well Sounds like the studio is maybe taking over uh, And deciding it And I think that Generation X vibe is Kind of largely out the window because as much as Soul Asylum just qualify for that, they were always the sort of commercial, you know, they, 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 they were the, the precursor of bands like Deep Blue something, mm-hmm. you know. What I mean, that totally. Runaway Train song set the, the fucking template for that kind of MOR, Hootie and the Blowfish, fucking thing. Somewhere, somewhere, Some of the bands that reappeared in all those soundtracks, Nine Inch Nails, Soundgarden, Girls Against Boys, Sonic Youth, absolutely are iconic 90s bands, <laughs> albeit I've just watched Nine Inch Nails last night and they're still playing very well, they, they were at their peak, they were their glory days, Soundgarden as well, Girls Against Boys, were only really relevant at that time although funnily enough i am going to fly to italy to see them Hmm. in a month (laughs) but that's because i'm stuck in my youth uh and sonic youth obviously sonic youth were just totally iconic at, at, at that time um why is that uh i think they were part of a musical movement that did organically sweep aside the the dregs of hair metal and that over commercialised Late 80s stuff And so It made sense That in people's minds Being associated with them Did associate you With that sort of Counterculture Even if it was Counterculture At a major studio There's an obvious mm-hmm. Contradiction within it Obviously Yeah but <laughs> you know um, Well they- me Max
0: Like made a <coughs> Made a lot of their money off Of like bringing in Outsiders and doing that one soundtrack that I didn't throw in, which is absolutely significant in so many ways, and as a, a Miramax film, is the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. Yeah, that's a good And that's one. a really good example of repurposing. Quentin Tarantino's really good at anachronisms, and the soundtrack to that is, is no exception, of course. Um, but it speaks to that. The Miramax were always quite quick to embrace the outsider. The, kind of the same thing that Blumhouse is maybe doing now, mm-hmm. a little bit, and that the, the the Pulp Fiction soundtrack lives in Infamy Well not even Infamy Lives It's in, famous So famous because of that Infamy Yeah Infamy aye, Infamy <laughs> Infamy uh, Because you know it, it's, it's very much of its time But not Because none of it is like current aye, You aye. know And it, it speaks to that era That kind of Gen
1: X mentality That Tarantino had at that time Yeah they they kind of tested the water with that uh, in, um, Reservoir Dogs Reservoir Dogs mm. as well Yeah Another illustration of how important the soundtracks Were at that time mm-hmm. I mean it just really was key Or I would say it was key to making a film successful But it, it was a huge Revenue source if your film was successful yeah. And it was a very important thing to be part of There's music actually built into the film
0: There's a lot of diegetic music within it Obviously the famous dancing scene is The best example of that in the film But there are other songs that are used in it And uh, how about your fella here? here? <laughs> All right, let's see what you can do. Take it away! Yeah. It was a teenage and the old folks wished... um, And as, I guess it's another way to approach that, right? If you can't use a soundtrack non-diegetically, then bringing in the influences you want to do it, use it in. He did it in Jackie Brown as well. He did it in Reservoir Dogs, like you say. And he even did it in Glorious Bastards with that David Bowie song. Really, really anachronistic. Well... Wow. Yeah.
1: Uh, a little bit of the background to the Clerks uh, soundtrack Because it's kind it's of unusual and intriguing uh, Licensing the songs for the soundtrack famously cost more than it, the movie itself $27,000 is how much the film cost $27,575 mm-hmm. is the sort of figure that gets bandied about by everybody associated with it And apparently the licensing fees were 28000 <laughs> So there you go 28000 for all those bands Yeah, but there was... Um, there were commissioning fees as well because the Jesus Lizard one was written for the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, Kevin Smith attributes a, a lot of the credit For the soundtrack To a guy called Benjamin Gordon This is what I was saying About this new influx Of young You know Fresh blood Mm -hmm. Into the industry He was a rising Young music executive At the time I'm not sure exactly Which of the companies He was involved in But uh, Miramax As we said Picked the film up After the chance and it's Sundance Sony got involved And I think they took The right cultural temperature uh, And they they wanted this To be in keeping With the Generation X Zeitgeist So they opened up Their own artists To inclusion Uh, Benjamin Gordon Then pushed the film To his employers and to the bands themselves sending out samplers of what he imagined the soundtrack featuring including one sampler to kevin smith himself um and kevin smith was has been quoted as saying all this music was put in my radar by benji a lot of them were just breaking at the time but it all came down to benji who had this vision when he watched the movie and felt that a bunch of the artists on the soundtrack would be into it so he sent the bands an early cut of the movie and a bunch of them responded right away that's cool. Um, one of those groups that responded Was Girls Against Boys uh, Scott McLeod has spoken about it Quite a few times He says uh, Clerks Like Slacker was one of those films That kind of defined what was called Generation X It was a post-Nirvana boom but still part of it Terms like Slacker and Hipster have been thrown around For a generation caught between the consumerism And art uh, Pavement is a clear leader musically Talking about the band Pavement And he's right, that's, that's a really interesting reference It doesn't actually appear in the soundtracks Praise the grammar police Set me up with your knees Walk to Baltimore And keep the language off the street Well, I must um, I'm not sure if Pavement have ever done soundtracks. I'd have to look that up. Um, but he, he, he takes note of their like sarcasm in their lyrics. Mm. They had a very sort of self-deprecating approach to their writing. It's, it's quite sardonic. Uh, he goes on I don't remember none of us do how uh, the girls against boys song Kill the Sex Player ended up on the Clerk soundtrack let alone in the film uh, it must have been Sursa 94 we were an up and coming band on Touch and Go maybe because we were releasing our second LP on that label we got picked at the time we didn't think of our song being in the film as a big deal I remember seeing a few clips and probably as it was being proposed as a good idea we readily agreed uh, I like these kind of films as an, an NYU film graduate myself uh, but we could never have expected the impact this film would have and for Girls Against Boys it was really big. That second record really really kicked on and was used like cuts of that were used in various films Uh, Brian O'Halloran the actor that played Dante in the film uh, has commented on it as well. By the way he was a a really big rap fan. In the Mm -hmm. film he wears a House of Pain shirt under his shirt Mm -hmm. and Kevin Smith was worried about that in case they got done for it for Mm -hmm. having you know I don't know you'd have to pay some sort of fucking charge I'd imagine Um, but he was really, really keen to sort of represent his musical background. Apparently, at school, just associated with a lot of like non-white groups. Just that was just his f- circle of friends. And it used to be a joke that when they got into like rap and hip hop conversations, his friends would give him the thumbs up because he knew so much about the genre. But here he was in this soundtrack that was largely alternative rock. He, he was still a fan of it. Um he, he said in interviews when the Seattle sound finally broke through, you couldn't get away from it, and you couldn't get enough of it. And that really saved the rock scene. I'm glad we were able to take. That sound and that music and that look and put it into a film that really spoke to exactly what Generation X feeling of being overeducated and underworked was like. Mm. One thing that occurred to me when I was watching the film again last night, because
0: the first time I'd seen it in a long, long time, is that mm. it's it's interesting how only some of the music happens all the time. But I thought from my memory there was more music from the soundtrack in the film, but there's really not compared to the songs that are on it. Yeah, you know? and that happens all the time in films. That is a common thing. Uh, I, I don't really know how they choose those songs. But obviously there is a process and a thinking behind it. Uh, but I was expecting there to be more apart from that terrible theme tune.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, Mike Dean of Corrosion of Conformity who I think are probably one of the most surprising inclusions in that soundtrack. Yeah. Um, he's commented on it uh, saying my assumption is some of the stuff he, Kevin, wanted on there while there are other songs where the label was like hey, dip into our catalogue. It was obvious there was a corporate tie-in with the inclusion of bands like this is... Corrosion of Conformity as I'm talking about himself and Alison Chains and Soul Asylum because we were all in Columbia at the time so they were bands that were added to this existing little indie film and even in their minds somewhat sort of superimposed over it to try and give it a bit of kudos and a bit of help Thanks to the, the tie-in with Sony um, On the perceptions of the soundtrack uh, Kevin Smith has commented uh, The simplicity of Clark's is what's infectious And a lot of the songs in the soundtrack Weren't these multi-layered complex tunes They were bare, stripped down and grungy So it totally complemented the look of the film uh, And the director Jason Reitman Do you know him? that you, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. thank you for smoking he, he agreed He says you could never touch that movie It's like a punk rock song It's four chords And it's incredibly powerful And it makes anybody listening to it think Think they could write the song too, so I, I I get that because when you watch Clerks, a lot of people picked up a camera and went out and tried to make a fun dialogue based in the movie, and a lot of the music that features on it is sort of speaking to that same thing. It's not a huge studio Hollywood produced thing even with the likes of Corrosion and Conformity it's kind of like sludgy, rocky stonery metal but it's doable you know and I, th- I think that I mean uh, Love uh, Love Among Freaks the band in it which we'll talk about shortly recorded their tracks for that in their garage hmm. you know and there they are on a, on a world famous soundtrack so yeah, uh, we'll, we'll have a look in a bit more detail, I think, at, at, at the album. Uh, it is worth saying that as big as Alice Ch- or as hot as Alice Chains were, the inclusion of Got Me Wrong on that soundtrack did turn it retrospectively into a little bit of a hit. That was taken from the Sa P uh, and that gave it a second bounce uh, As I mentioned with the the Natural Born Killers soundtrack, the inclusion of little dialogue segments is a semi-frequent sort of feature of various soundtracks, but especially in that era, Um, and I think it does integrate the soundtrack with the film a a, a bit more, I mean obviously it does, Um, it can be frustrating as a listening experience, you know, it can be a little bit annoying to have, if you really like the flow of songs, to have these little bits, but it is the nature of the beast that's part of this movie, and I actually quite liked it with the clerks on, especially seeing as some of the little pull out bits, they were quite astute at pulling out the bits that people had taken away the little phrases, you know, I'm not even supposed to be here today. You know, that those kind of little quotes that really did jump out from the film also appeared on that soundtrack, and probably the soundtrack went a long way to cementing them as the pull quotes. Um, it just made the whole thing feel a little bit less slapped on, it made it f- feel a lot more like it had all been done in sync. Like,
0: for me I, I did find that frustrating I also found that Without the context of the film It, it does make for a very
1: Odd listening experience Yeah It doesn't like There's no humour at all Because it's like What the fuck does that actually mean But that's interesting though Because then people Who are encountering The soundtrack on its own It's advertising the film Do you know what I mean It's it's This is the clerk's soundtrack and it has bits of dialogue from it and so there'll be people that never saw the film and heard the soundtrack because it was a good soundtrack or because a band they liked was on it. And I suppose there is a sort of really crude attempt there to steer them back to, by the way, you like the soundtrack, you should go and watch the film. Here's a couple of quotes that'll jump out and you'll be, you know, maybe they'll be sitting watching the film and they'll go, oh, that's that bit. There is a signpost in there that I think is quite interesting. Mm. Um And it actually it starts with that. The track one is Dante's Lament. It's called, uh, and that's that. I'm not even supposed to be here today, which is just something that he keeps whining during the movie. I'm
0: not even supposed to be here today.
1: Uh, If you haven't seen the movie, by the way, you really should see the movie. It's not the best movie ever made, but it's totally lovable and enjoyable and kitsch, I suppose. Yep. Uh, The first track, the first musical number on it is "Clark's by Love Among Freaks." Which is a sort of opening gambit of the film anyway. It's a TV show introduction almost. It is, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's naff. It's not a good totally. song. It's a horrible um, song. <laughs> Kevin Smith put it on in this specifically though. He was at high school with the guitarist for the band. They played the version of Berserker on it as well. Uh, and it's definitely one of the weakest tunes. But I think that makes sense. They were not a professional band. I don't think they did much after this actually. They're in the film. By the way, the guys, they, they come into the, the store at one point. Oh, right. I think they're customers and then end up getting fobbed off. And I think that's a personal inclusion that also sets Clerks apart from a lot of these other Generation X films where there was none of that integration, none of that personalisation. Kevin Smith got his mates to play the opening track of this film and then make an appearance in the film. He got
0: his major star in that because, yeah, the, the money that he got for it was a combination of savings, money from, like, some money that his parents had put away for college, credit cards. He worked in those two stores, worked 21 hours a day if you include the filming, yep. apparently he was so tired that when they were filming the end of the film, because he shot it in twenty-one days consecutively. By the end of the film, he couldn't even stay
1: awake because yeah. he was just so fucking tired. Yeah, he used to. They closed at half ten. He started filming at eleven. They finished at six am every day, and he used to have the register open. Like in the film, the register doesn't close, mm. but they used to have to keep the register open so that very, very first thing they didn't want to interfere with customers, so they would use it to give change to actual customers in the morning. Mm. Um, and take deliveries of like rolls and milk and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's also why the shutters closed as well. I, it's for it was kids. filmed at night, mm-hmm. and that's why all the way through the film the shutters closed. There you go, it's a famous detail. Um, the third track, Kill the Sex Player, it's girls against boys. This song is so hip right now I'm going the You know, I I fucking love Girls Against Boys. They're fantastic. This isn't actually my favourite Girls Against Boys song, but I think it works really well in this context. It introduces Jane Silent Bob in the film. It's really sort of lazy and druggy and stonery. it sounds like the like the lyrics have been improvised it is it's, yeah, it it's, it's mm-hmm. fucking daft but that's what girls against boys did they had that real nihilistic generation x sort of disaffected Nonchalance You know mm. It's like Our lyrics are nonsense We don't even care You know They, they, they did that All the way through Their career It's um, a cool song
0: um, Look, It's got a cool chorus I think uh, When the fuzz kicks in I think yeah. that's really nice they, uh, they had two bass players Did they? Well, yeah Nice uh, The verse is kind of fun uh, I like One of the one of the bass tones Is like really fat and thick Which I like mm. um, And it feels very of the time
1: the, the spoken word vocal Like you say Feels improvised but Scott McLeod the, the, the singer Is so fucking cool I, I saw them Years and years later I mean it must have been early 2000s at King Tut's in Glasgow back when that was still a venue that put on good bands and he was just on stage leather jacket shades he barely moves when he plays it's just like it's just all about the the charisma Um, I mean I I have a lot of time for this band I mean they're definitely going to be in a show Mm. at some point and I already know what album as well it's not this one though Mm. Uh, shocker this album as I say got dipped into for other films they follow that way just a little sample no time for love dr. jones (laughs) And then it's Got Me Wrong by Alison Chains, one of the really big hitters. And I think a, a name that people were taking, like, what the fuck? That's on, that's on that? How did they get that? This scores the introduction of Randall, and I think that's. Pretty deliberate because Randall is really the kind of grungy waster character in it, you know, the, the flannel yeah. shirt, hat on backwards, Seattle kind of dude. And so Alice and Chains were a perfect choice, really hot at this moment. Um, their only soundtrack. Appearances prior were for singles, um, which is pretty obvious given the subject of singles. But also, Last Action Hero. Oh, really? Yeah, which shows you like how big they were getting because Last Action Hero was a fucking huge budget movie it was. and a huge movie in general, and a film that actually has aged far better. The, the, the you know. The, the further we get from it, because it wasn't particularly well reviewed. Yeah, nobody think. understood how meta or What? But this concept of something
0: being meta didn't exist back then. Uh, Shane Black is a genius, I think, and he, he he wrote the script, which was then cut down to a story because somebody who wrote the script. It was John McTiernan who did Die Hard that directed it It's
1: it's a, it's a really good film. Yeah. Uh, it's a fun. It's an enjoyable. Watch that film. when I go home. Yeah, it feels like an eighties movie, doesn't it? Does. it? Uh-huh. You know, but it lampoons it in a fucking such a yeah, good way. Exactly. Yeah. So Alison Chains had been on that. So mm-hmm. they were clearly hot property so this was a big change of pace so they went from Last Action Hero to Clerks it's mm. a big fucking difference and uh, <laughs> did you know I, this is blew my fucking mind strangely their next inclusion on a soundtrack was that same year uh, and it was the song Man in the Box huge fucking Alice in Chains song yeah. on the soundtrack to Lassie Lassie, <laughs> fuck <laughs> no, me, <laughs> Lassie. and honestly, I was like, I need to look up what fucking scene <laughs> <laughs> this collie running across a field, like, or poking its nose down a well. Like, fuck, knows, man, but uh, brilliant. It's
0: so a good do. song. Um, I, I really like the, the laid back vibe of it, which kind of, for the most part, kind of fits with the film. The duo vocals kind for of, kind of Cantrell and, and Steely are really nice.
1: Stop. Yeah, I mean this. I think the popularity of that song in this film went a long way to getting it picked for their Unplugged album and session, which was a fucking legendary. And I mean, in the catalog of Unplugged sessions, mm-hmm. the in Chains one is easily one of the best. I like how the bass anchors it, like roots the whole song because it's so loud in the recording, and it's still
0: a bit dirty. And everything else is, for the most part, not. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a, a really good song. I like the way it builds up to the chorus. It's really dynamic, not in that obvious
1: grunge way. It's mm-hmm. cool. Uh, we inclusion of some Randall and Dante dialogue, Randall and Dante on sex. Chick only made you nuts, man. She cheated on you how many times? Eight and a half. Eight and a half? Party at John Kay's senior year. I get blitzed, passed out in his bedroom. Caitlin comes in, and jumps all over me. So that's cheating? No, in the middle of it, she called me Brad. She called you Brad? Call me Brad. Uh People say crazy shit during sex all the time. One time I called this girl Mom. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the seventh track, Making Me Sick by Bash and Pop. Now, Passion Pop was a sort of short-lived project by Tommy Stinson, who was an ex-member of the Replacements, Replacements. who were obviously fucking like big news uh, in the late eighties. Uh, this is apparently Kevin Smith's favorite track on on the soundtrack. Oh wow! Actually. Guitar on this track is played by Brian Baker Of Bad Religion He was playing guitar for them at the time Having just failed an audition for R.E.M (laughs) Honestly Nice Um, I was never a huge fan of this track As a piece of music It's very, very 90s rock Yes Um, But in that it, It feels like an appropriate choice And knowing the sort of heritage of The, you know, Stinson and the band And the members of the band I can see why it was included. I didn't really get it at the time because I didn't have any real reverence for the replacements, or, you know, I didn't even, I was only just being introduced to bad religion, but it it, it makes sense. It gives it a little bit of a musical factor, you know.
0: Tommy Stinson would end up Going on to play With guns N' Roses. noses Not long after this I think he was our Longest serving bass
1: player Nobody's perfect mm. um, Track 8 Is just a, a little Dialogue bit A snippet again A bunch of Muppets All Jedi had Was a bunch of Muppets <laughs> Another good takeaway From the film uh, Track 9 Chewbacca by Supernova I didn't really know Much about Supernova oh, Chewbacca's fun. Very famous in the film of Chewbacca <laughs> What a wookie che- The band were kind of unknown. They're from Orange County, punk rock band. Uh, they were on the original 1995 Vans tour. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, members of them went on to join Man or Astro Man and the Aquabats, I believe. Oh. Um, I don't think the band itself did a hell of a lot, though. Mm-hmm. The song's um, awful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's sort of like, it's a gag song. Yeah. You know, it's a gag song on a novelty character from a film and... It's meant to be super cheesy and corny, Mm -hmm. you know Uh, And it ties in with the dialogue in the movie as well Which I think is kind of key 10, Panic and Cicero by the Jesus Lizard (sighs) was actually commissioned for the movie Dwayne Dennison's spoken about it he described them giving a quote tidy little budget uh, to go into a studio and put together and and lay down this track for the the rooftop hockey battle and yeah he was was just they were again watching the footage trying to come up with this thing they'd apparently had this beat sitting about for a while that they wanted to try and include and this just felt really really good and they were so happy with how it turned out that it then made it onto their 1994 album Down Mm -hmm. which was the last album they would do with Steve Albini before for he pushed them out the boat for uh, signing to I think it was Atlantic. Um he felt they'd completely sold out and then he went and recorded push. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The main riff in this song is great, especially with the, the way that it's har- the harmonised in a discordant way. Yeah. And the bass as well is, is also harmonised.
1: It's really interesting. Well, this is the best rock band of all time, so yeah. it, it, it would be, you know. I mean, this is just a fucking absolutely next level group. I, you know, when I first got into Clerks, this song was a little bit beyond me. I, I specifically remember going to the record store in Stirling. Europa Music, by the way, folks, biggest vinyl store in Scotland. If you're a wow. collector, head there. Uh will treat you nice. He's got a lovely rainbow jumper that he mm-hmm. wears all the time. It's kind of his thing. Uh, but yeah, I used, I remember going in there and I actually got a limited edition Jesus Lizard vinyl And I took it home And me and my friends Tried to listen to it And we are like This is fucking mental And I took it back mm-hmm. And fuck I don't know what I swapped it for Like some dodgy Fucking grunge album mm-hmm. uh, And it's probably A collector's album yeah. um, But there you go I, I couldn't quite get into Jesus Lizard at this time It's only now That I'm such a huge fan Of the band That I, I love the fact That this song is on here And the story about it The fact that it was Actually written and You know made for this That's great Um, the 11th track in this Serves a really A really important purpose So it's a band Golden Smog With a song called Shooting Star Shooting Star's a bad company Sort of classic rock anthem Golden Smog Were an alt country supergroup, And I think for credibility's sake, a really, really clever inclusion here, especially for the Musos, for the Nick Hornbys, you know, because this is members of the Jayhawks, Soul Asylum, Wilco, The Replacements, Big Star, you know, this is like classic, hipster, alternative, kind of alt-country icons. I mean, I really like the Jayhawks. I'm not fucked about most of the rest of them. I mean, Wilco Wilco or Wilco, Mm -hmm. for some people, they are unimpeachably brilliant. I've never quite got into them, but I think putting Golden Smog in there... Is, is, is a really savvy decision It's a good
0: song I've never even heard of the band before It does give me a massive Tom Petty vibe So that's unsurprising
1: Yeah uh, The vocal and the chorus Reminds me of Ocean Colour Scene <laughs> <laughs> Yeah actually you know what I, I know what you mean But that's because of that collision Of American alt country And then this 70s rock ballad
0: Johnny told his mama Hey mama I'm Someday, yeah. Mama came to the door with a
1: You know, because it mm-hmm. does have a, a it's a seventies tune, yeah. so it's it's got a kinda old sensibility. Which ocean colour
0: scene exploited quite a lot in their music, didn't they? Uh, and it's got I really like your guitar solo as well, so
1: yeah. mm-hmm. Track twelve Leaders and Followers by Bad Religion. Classic Bad Religion song Right that, that, To me this is still Arguably their best song I, really? I said, I said that on the, the Bad Religion episode I, I absolutely fucking love this song That's a great song It's so fucking good This was the first appearance On a soundtrack I'd heard this song On Bruce Dickinson's Radio 1 show mm-hmm. Now I don't know if he'd included it on his show because It must have been about the same time that this film came out That I was listening to that Because that was one of my first places to go to learn about new bands And uh, Really good show that that Bruce put on It really varied, not just metal and stuff I got into a lot of things that way Um, I loved this fucking tune I'd taped the show and I kept playing this tune And then I saw that it was on the soundtrack And then it was included on a reissue of Stranger Than Fiction The the, the expanded edition Of that I just think it's fucking fantastic and I think the inclusion of Bad Religion is fucking genius it's so much kudos and credibility Bad Religion had worked really hard to get a very high respectability factor over the years they were punk and they were legit and putting them on this soundtrack lended to, to the film's overall reputation yeah I mean this, this was on their major this is when they were on a major label their first major label
0: album was obviously Stranger Than Fiction you know it's, I, I, in my opinion it's not the strongest Bad Religion song but there's fucking so many great Bad Religion songs it's actually kind of a ridiculous thing to say if it's not the strongest Bad Religion song because there's so many that are just as good what can you say about it it's, it's fucking classic Bad religion it's got some great overlapping vocals with the leaders and followers but when they chant that yeah smashing harmonies it's even got the really small functional guitar solo which yeah is just pure like break
1: where it is it's, it's quite a dark bad religion song you know it the is, fact that yeah. it goes up and down one one fret you mm-hmm. know it's 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 quite sinister it's quite minor key and yeah. i just loved that about it. it felt really edgy um after that uh we get into i like to expand my horizons little vocal snippet hey what you rent? Best of both worlds Hermaphroditic porn Starlets with both organs You should see the box Beautiful chicks with dicks That put mine to shame And you rented this? Hey I like to expand my horizons Then track 14 Which is a bit of a non sequitur Violent midswings Swings a, a, a remix of it actually By Stabbing Westward It feels like it's on the wrong soundtrack <laughs> Yeah I think It's because it's um, the bit where Jay is trying to breakdance uh-huh. And they needed that Kind of clubby techno thing I think this is a misfire on the soundtrack. It feels a bit at odds, but then it does play a part in the movie mm. you know what I mean it is, it is actually in there in the film um, I mean Stab and Westward are sort of weird second division industrial electronic rock act never got close to the level of Ministry or Nine Inch Nails I mean yeah. they were okay but they were yeah, they were the album that you bought and maybe took back you know? it sounds like you should be in the Crow or the Blaze soundtrack or Aye, very, much so, very much so very much so 15 Berserker this was again done by Love Among Freaks uh, and sort of makes a nod to the, the Berserker dance and, and the, the dialogue in the film Uh, track 16, Corrosion of Conformity that we mentioned with the song Big Problems as I say, a big name but a really good name for inclusion this obviously made possible by the Miramax Sony connection (laughs) Used over the fight scene between Randall and Dante In the film itself I mean, Corrosion and Conformity were admired But not an obvious choice for this Yeah, and I like that It it also makes the soundtrack heavier than others It pushes it well, well, well away from the likes of Empire Records And that wishy-washy 90s alternative bullshit mm-hmm. You know, It's a really good song I'm not overly familiar with Corrosion and Conformity
0: I'd never heard this song before it's got a fucking great guitar, so a really noisy breakdown, I love the sludgyness, it, mm. it serves the scene very well in the film. Yeah. Probably so many other songs you could have used there that were heavier, but you're
1: right, it's a left field choice and mm-hmm. it works. It is, and I just think it's nice to set the film away from, like I said, that MOR trend mm-hmm. in these in these films in that era. You know, it was it, it was unexpected and rewarding. Speaking of MOR. MOR, yes, yeah, Seaweed's <laughs> cover of Go Your Own Way. Seaweed were actually a Seattle band, but they kinda of straddled the grunge and punk movement a bit. Yeah. I know know some people have actually got a a real soft spot for Seaweed as a band. I I didn't ever think they were that great a band. I quite like this cover. Um, They couldn't get close to using the Fleetwood Mac original. Uh, Apparently, when Kevin Smith did the film Tusk, Mm -hmm. um, they had asked to use the Fleetwood Mac song, Tusk, in it. And they they were told the licensing fee was a quarter of a million dollars for that one fucking random Fleetwood Mac song. But... I guess the, the fee for covering it must have been significantly less. Oh,
0: they're, like, they're
1: massively less. Yeah, at least yeah, yeah.
0: fee, yeah. Well,
1: like I said, all the licensing for this entire soundtrack was 28 grand for That's all not it. Because you could get somebody to come in and cover it almost as exactly that like that. I don't know if you wanted to yeah. like, if that was the case. People have yeah. and regularly do now. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the fucking half of radio one now is made up of people doing a cover of a song and just playing it a little bit slower, mm-hmm. maybe on a piano. Um, another little vocal snippet, Social Event of the Season at Track eighteen and then track nineteen Can't Even Tell by Soul Asylum, which is the kinda of closing credits track which has that really iconic intro that anyone who's watched this film as many times as I have will be able to hear in their head right now, especially if you were high at the time, <laughs> which I usually was. can't be doing with this band they they are peak 1990s the singer Singer Dave Perner Was actually dating Winona Ryder At the time That's how fucking 90s he was That's how Generation X He was um, And this was coming After their success With the track uh, Runaway Run train. train That fucking horrible song Oh man The chorus is weird In this
0: It feels jangly But also not It's kind of grungy But not quite It's just
1: They feel like a 70s band That are trying to be yeah. Cool It's They, they, they did, they did weird, set the scene man. For all that grunge light You know Like I'm yeah, not joking totally. when, it's, when it's like Breakfast at Tiffany's And stuff like that mm-hmm. that's That comes from the soul asylum side of grunge music,
0: yeah.
1: And then it finishes with Jay's Chant, a uh, little snippet as well. Noise, 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 smoking weed, smoking weed, doing coke, drinking beers. Pack your ass, my good man. Time to kick back, drink some beers and smoke some weed. Uh, and that is the soundtrack to Clerks. And as I said, just by breaking it down there, I just think there's something that sets us apart. The, the surprise factor of it, the ambition of it. I think the ambition of it really needs to be stated. Like, this cost more than the film itself, but has gone a huge way to making that film really special. And the fact that the film is so special brought the bands into the lives of people. And, you know, here I am, years later, still into at least three or four of these acts still listening to them pretty regularly. Yeah, I I, I love it. And, um, albeit it's well thought of, I, I think it's well thought of amongst this glut of other soundtracks. And I think it deserves to be held in a slightly higher esteem than them. Because, with the exception of stuff like The Crow, which I think was brilliantly done, the likes of Empire Records and the likes of Suburbia and the likes of Rats and stuff, they don't feel as natural and as honest and as sincere as this. This was just a brilliant coming together, a chance thing. And yeah, I love it. I, th- I think it's a, a really impressive feat. that sort of got ripped off badly by a lot of people after it, but it, it means a lot to a lot of people. Mm. Uh,
0: You've made, it, you've made a good case for it And I think you've kind of convinced me I think the film is slightly above average I enjoyed watching it I didn't enjoy it the first time I watched it But I enjoyed it more the second time yeah. Probably because of that distance from it It yeah. does feel as though It does feel very of the era Some of it hasn't as well But it's a nice little look into, into life Just regular life back then In a way that a lot of other These kind of films just don't do it Because they're heightened Or they've got other stuff going on This yeah. feels very real and grounded uh, The soundtrack is very well utilised in the film yeah, uh, I think a lot of the songs A lot of the artists Are not well, are not grounded artists Like Alice in Chains Are fucking massive do you know what I mean yeah. um, I think the soundtrack itself Is fairly average For a f- fairly above average film But you know Like soundtracks They've, they've never really been A thing for me anyway You know So that's I, don't I mean don't...
1: it's rare That you get a soundtrack That's good from start to finish yeah, Even, totally. You know The Crow is not good From start to yeah, finish Absolutely. Um, but I, I just think There's so many other things Going on in a soundtrack That deserve credit I agree, I agree. You know You can actually I mean the, the Soul Asylum track I do not like it as a piece of music but i love it in the context of clerks that closing scene mm-hmm. and even the terrible love among freaks tv show theme tune opening is fun in the context of the movie it all works well it does yeah so i'm not against it man good stuff good stuff i didn't think i would manage that but <laughs> it came from a it, it, it came from an honest place so yeah but you made a good case for it and you know i love film so there you go <laughs> right well we also have an exes for this one we do Next
0: Next next. a complicated series of connections between different things.
1: We do have re- ne- port- access. N- v- ne- uh it was Gregory Corso, uh, as nominated by Chris Hind. Yeah, he is a beat poet.
0: Did you know him already? No, he's the one I was not familiar with. Uh, I believe he was the youngest of the beat poets. I'm a big Allen Ginsberg fan, and they were really close pals and stuff because the inner Circle were all close,
1: but I've no, not read any of the stuff, so. Mm. Well, it's a, a, another low key flex, I suspect. Yeah, I think like so. Like Chris Hind. Yeah. Um, flex noted, uh, you win. So I go first because yeah, I you nominated him. Uh-huh. Right. Clerk's movie, uh, there is a famous discussion scene between Randall and Dante uh, about an alternative perspective on the destruction of the Death Star. <laughs> the Death Star 2, I might add. I want to be II. very clear it's the Death Star 2 uh, in Return of the Jedi, and it, 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 it entails the, the number of innocent construction workers that were killed on board because the Death Star 2 was. In production, mm-hmm. unlike the Death Star 1. Uh, and so when they destroyed it, the idea is that, yeah, it wouldn't be staffed with like generals and colonels and shit. It would be staffed with, you know, tradesmen <laughs> for one of a better Space base. tradesmen. Space <laughs> tradesmen. <laughs> so. As it turns out, as part of the commentary feature on Star Wars 2 Attack of the Clones, George Lucas references the conversation from clerks, right? And he actually claims that the Genosians... Now, I know there's definitely a couple of listeners, Kenny Bonella, right now nodding furiously. The Genosians (laughs) built the Death Star, and he says they are basically just big termites, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) Which seems like interplanetary speciesism to me, because I've seen pictures of the Genosians They've got clothes on so they're <laughs> sentient in some form, and he's like, Well fuck it, they're just slaves, you know, they just died on it. It's not a big deal. So it wasn't human tradespeople mm-hmm. that died on the Death Star, so that's fine. It that's was bam for George Lucas's soul, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> just Genosians. Um so the voice of Yoda from Star Wars was performed by Frank Oz famously. Yes. And he also performed the voices of Grover. And Cookie Monster on Sesame Street. I think he's still doing it, is he not? I think he is still yoga. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he is. Also, by the way, uh, as another Sesame Street to Star Wars tie, and I had two options here because in January 1980, it was titled Episode 1394 Big Bird Meets C3PO and RTD2.
0: Nice crossover.
1: There you go. Uh, So. Aye, Lincoln to Sesame Street. Uh, another one-off appearance on that show was a short animated segment featuring the Pink Panther carving a giant K, which promptly crumbles. The Pink Panther cartoon was actually adapted into a series uh, because of the extremely popular opening credits of the Pink Panther movie featuring Peter Sellers. Mm. I didn't actually know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah, it's, so basically, it had this animated character in the in in the credits, and people just loved it. They were like, "Oh, well, make that into a cartoon," and it became a cartoon. See, that,
0: that, that ex- Explains so much because I remember as a wee guy watching the Pink Panther
1: film thinking. What the fuck is the Pink Panther? Yeah, it's really <laughs> odd, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so since around 2003, there has existed a world-famous syndicate of largely Balkan-born jewel thieves known as the Pink Panthers. Oh. Uh, they got that name thanks to Interpol, the, the organisation, not the band, uh, because in 2003, following a robbery in London, they hid a half-million pound jewel in a jar of face cream, uh, just as happens in the film itself. And since then, they've committed multiple in enormous heists. They committed the biggest, I think it's the biggest dual heist in Japan's history. Uh, they also uh, included a $100 million heist in 2008, which had the four male robbers dressed as, as women uh, to, to get into the premises. Um, a fella called Vojislav Stanimirovic was affiliated with Pink Panthers. Uh, he was a crime boss, mob boss, and is also uh, a notorious alumnus of The Tombs. The Tombs is a famous... Uh, And famously ugly jail in Manhattan Officially known as the Manhattan Detention Complex It inherited the name The Tombs in 1983 From the previous Manhattan House of Detention Which closed in 1974 after a judge ruled The conditions were so dreadful as to be unconstitutional That was the same jail that had housed a 13 year old Gregory Nuncio Corso Who had been Mm. put there for selling a toaster So that he could take the money and go and see a movie For that offence, he was placed in a cell next to a criminally insane man who'd stabbed his wife to death with a screwdriver. Uh, Apparently he was traumatised for life because of being next to this guy for so long. His stepmother uh, refused to pay the $50 bond for his release. His own mother, his his birth mother couldn't be located. After a few stints uh, in different jails and prison facilities, he went on to become a successful beat poet, so... Where's the problem? He was estranged uh, from his mother for a long time, but they did actually make up. Yeah. He only found out, I think he was like 63 when he found out yeah. that the actual story of his mum, yeah. his dad had lied to him his whole life about why she'd left. Sad. she tried to come back and he had threatened to kill her. Wow. And so she'd left again for, I don't know, for both their sakes, but he didn't know that until he was in his 60s. I
0: think she was still alive as well when he was in his 60s, so they were able to reconcile, which is nice. Um, so Kevin Smith, as you said, had directed. Many films after Clerks, and couldn't, including Chase and Amy. Both of the Afflecks are in Chase and Amy. Ben, obviously the main character, and his brother, Casey's in it. Casey Affleck starred alongside Al Pacino in Ocean's 13. Never seen it. Never seen it either. I've only seen the first one, uh, 11 and 12, which are the first and second ones. Al Pacino quite famously played Michael Corleone in the Godfather trilogy. Heard about it uh, And the poet Gregory Corso appeared in Godfather 3 <laughs> as an unruly stockholder
1: Oh really? Yeah That's an
0: interesting little detail Yeah just uh, just like a little cameo appearance of him being raging that he's trying to get his word in as a stockholder and couldn't do it, couldn't do it. So he, he was in like four films <laughs> just as a little bit of parts It's pretty fun Nice work if you can get it Yeah Pity it was three though eh? Yeah <laughs> of all the ones that could be the third one. They almost did a fourth one, as I found out when I was researching that. They almost made a fourth one. They'd half written a script but when Mario Puzo, the writer, he died. Uh, and it was going to have Leonardo DiCaprio playing James Caan's character and Robert Niro back as the character he plays Vito, but set in the 30s, so it'd be set across the different timelines,
1: apparently. Sounds like it could be quite fun. I'd like it if they did a Godfather 4, like Pixar style, (laughs) animated. Lots of blood and death and horse's heads and stuff. Just everybody with like giant (laughs)
0: noses. That's the thing. Like most of the heads the nose. (laughs) Like the (laughs) Nigel Thornberry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah. Thanks for entertaining me. That was that was actually good fun and nostalgic. We've had a couple of days of nostalgia. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed that. So we're going to keep next week under wraps. Yes. Purely because we're so organised and we just want to make it a surprise, not because we don't know what it's going to be. We're we're shuffling around a couple of interviews that we want to do at the background here, and it's just trying to get schedules to align mm-hmm. uh, so we can land them. Uh, but stick with us; we we will tell you during the course of the week if any of them fall into place. And feeling that. We'll keep these coming. Yay. Well, oh, thanks, folks. Remember to share the podcast, please. Yeah, please go friends. and share some of the episodes. That would be great. Tag people on them. Fantastic. Really, It's really nice, by the way, getting some of the comments back on Patreon. Thanks for that. I'm assured that Mark replies to you. <laughs> but we do read them and it's lovely. So please feel free to keep sending those along. That's that's great. Yeah, I have, I have some emails to reply to. I'll get there in There you go. He's gonna <laughs> go on it. I've shamed him publicly. <laughs> but we look forward to hearing from you. Uh go and subscribe if you haven't already subscribed it would really help us out. And try and get somebody else into the show. That's that's also very useful. Yes. Please please do. Take care. Bye.